Well, good, <clears throat> good morning, family. Good to have all of our guests here today. Thank you for coming. Hope the Lord blesses you with your time with us this morning. And uh, <clears throat> well, if you haven't already, open your Bibles to Colossians chapter four. Thank you, Luke, for reading those passages. And um, Merlin, if you could, could you dim these lights for me right here? That'd be that'd be great. <clears throat> Well, we are in our, our final eighth um, episode of our study in Colossians, and um, we have been working through this book since before Christmas, and then we took a break for Advent, and then we picked it up again, as you know, right after the uh, first of the year. And um, <clears throat> we've been talking about, Paul's been talking about uh, what I've entitled what a well-dressed Christian should wear, and not so much in terms of our outward physical appearance, style-wise, but um, in, we, in the way we conduct our lives. You know, and as I was thinking about this, um, thinking about the whole book of Colossians, and I'm gonna finish with this thought, but I'm gonna start with the thought also, that one of the things Paul's trying to get across to us are we as believers are his story. You, you realize that? We're called to be ambassadors, <clears throat> but by our lives and who we are, we're a testimony of what God is doing. That he is redeeming the lost. And if you know him as your personal savior, you've been redeemed, and so you have become part of his living story for the whole world to see. A world that is lost and basically going to hell. And I, you know, some of, some of you have not been here for the series, and, and so I always like to drop back a little bit and kind of bring you up to speed to get to you to where we need to be today. And I started as, if you had been here, you'd know with this picture several weeks ago, this is New York City in the 1950s, and the point being, if you look at the way people are dressed, there's a commonality. In, in the way they are attired. And the ladies are all in dresses, and the men are in suits or, you know, well-groomed. And that's the way it was when I grew up. And I shared you with my mom would never be caught dead going downtown as a young woman dressed in jeans with holes in them and that were form-fitting and showed off every one of her curves. She would not have done that. That would have been scandalous. When she went to town, she looked like this. You know, she was dressed up. And, and she insisted that her son treat her with respect, i.e. me, because she taught me that a gentleman always walked on the street side on the curb. And she never said that. You know what she did? Every time we'd walk down the street, if I was on the inside, she'd just keep running me over until I ran into the wall. And I had to go to the outside. And to this day, when Joy and I are walking down the street, I cannot walk on the inside. I'm afraid mom is still there, <laughs> pushing me against that wall. You know, but she, she, had, she knew how ladies should act, what was required of them. And it wasn't because of scripture, it was because something deeper. 
that within our culture, the Judeo-Christian ethic was really strong back in the 1950s. Even if, there, if you remember, if you grew up during that time, there was no store open on Sunday. You didn't do that. And there was hardly anything open. 7-Eleven was the first grocery store I remember being open longer than about 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Fast forward to today in New York City, and if you look at this picture, you don't see a uniformity. You see a concept of everybody's doing their own thing in America now. We have become narcissistic. It is, after all, all about me, you know, have it your way. And that is because back in the 1950s, 60s, someplace in there, we took God out of our society. We took him out of the classrooms. When I was going to grade school, you could still pray in school. And we've thrown all that out now. So when we take God out, then we're left with this kind of situation. In those days, the days of the judges, and in these days, there's no king. There's no set standard anymore. And so everyone does what's right in their own eyes. Hence, we are falling apart as a society. We're fractured as a society because there's no moral basis any longer to hold us together. And that is why, family, that is why how we look and how we behave is the testimony of who God is within our culture and in Nigeria or wherever we find ourselves going. By our very lives, we proclaim Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul's called us to, what the Lord has called us to through Paul. When we look, we looked at this, what self looks like, and in Colossians 3, 5 through 9, we may look really good on Sunday morning when we go to work or something like that, but down deep inside, the reality of who we really are is going to manifest itself in some way in one of these areas. Immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, greed, anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech. And I think if we're really honest with ourselves and we know that the sin nature is still alive and well within us, that you can probably look at one of these items on the list and say, yeah, guilty as charged. I have been greedy. I have been angry. I have said things about other people I should not have said. I have slandered them. And I have said things to people that I should not have said directly with abusive speeches. It is what the nature, our selfish nature, looks like. It's what we look like when we're dead in our trespasses and sins. But the Lord doesn't leave us there because when we put on the new self, as we look at these passages, we found that <clears throat> there is no prejudice and there's compassion and kindness, humility and gentleness and patience with one another and bearing one another and forgiving one another and loving one another. And you see what the shift is there? It's a shift away from the self to considering the needs of others more important than ourself. Because how can you be compassionate with someone else unless you understand what they're going through, what trail they are walking, what suffering 
they are enduring. And you know, we are all on that trail someplace. Some of us are suffering physically, and you can think within our congregation, those that are physically suffering and the anguish of that. Some of us are suffering mentally through circumstances that are beyond our control. And usually it has to do with interpersonal relationships and sadly, oftentimes those are with family members. And you can keep joy in your prayers as she is going through that as we speak. She, by the way, is down um, this week uh, caring for her mom who had a stroke. But the kindness and the humility and the gentleness and the patience is not something that we manufacture in of ourselves because our nature is not that way. Rather, these are the character traits of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in his compassion and kindness, his humility, his gentleness, his patience, he bore our sin on the cross, didn't he? Because he loved us. And yet, while we were still enemies with him, he loved us enough to go to the cross and make peace. It's all his doing. And so the lifestyle of a Christian, what should be put on, Paul, I think, centers on this, whatever you do in word and deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks through him to the Father. Whatever we do, every aspect of our lives should be saturated with not the self, but with Jesus Christ. He is who the world should see through us. And that manifests itself in a number of different ways. You know, you think about those passages of scripture for equips the body with different members to different, different things. You know, we listened to our music team this morning, one of our teams, we have several in the church, part of our teams, and Derek's great at grabbing, you know, people and putting together a team. I could, I could no more do any of that than fly, you know. And there are others of us that are skilled with our hands. The shepherds fall into that category, you know. They are the ones in our church that when something needs doing physically, they are there. Why are they there? They bring their gifts of the ability to work with their hands out of a love and compassion and a desire to minister to others. And it's just ever bit as important of what I'm doing this morning, using possibly a gift God's given me to share and exemplify his love, his grace through his holy word. The body needs all the parts, doesn't it? And we're all equipped differently to manifest Jesus Christ in what he's called us to do. So whatever we do, indeed, do all in the name and giving thanks to him. So that brings us to today. That's the background of where we've been. And so today we look at these passages of scriptures that um, Luke read for us just a moment ago, uh, verses four, two through six. And I had to cut it off someplace uh, because we're simply out of time. Um, Jerry, as he mentioned too, he's gonna be starting in the Old Testament this coming next Sunday. But in 426, Paul, after saying all these things about who we are and the reasons for who we are, kind of brings it to a head and gives us three areas to where we're to manifest Jesus Christ to the world. And that's in prayer, in our conduct, in our speech. And prayer through four through, uh, pardon me, four, two through four, 
He says, be devoted to it. Be devoted to prayer. Now, I don't know about you, but I can get so easily distracted with what's going on in the world and what my life is about that I simply don't pray. I realize all you guys have gotten, gals have got this nailed down, but I don't. I don't. And I need to be better at that. And I'm convicted to do better at that. But I'm not going to make a New Year's resolution do better because I won't if I do that. He says of our conduct in 4-5, do it with wisdom, and we'll explore that here in just a moment. And then with our speech, as our little um, illustration mentioned or, or showed us today, our, our, our artwork, um, seasoned with salt, with grace and knowledge. And I really like that concept of seasoned with salt. You know, salt brings out flavor, doesn't it, in, in foods. And it's also vital to our bodies for our health. You think about those two concepts. If you're going to tell a story and your life is the story of Jesus Christ, it ought to be seasoned with salt. It ought to be interesting, and it is, if you have the wisdom to see what God has done in your life and can share that. But as I got to this point in working on this message, um, I couldn't get away from this question right here. The question is this, if God is sovereign, and you know where this is going, if, if, if God is going to do what he's going to do, then what's the use of praying that he's not going to do something? So, okay, is God sovereign? Well, yeah, he is. And there's a few verses that exemplify that. I put a couple of them up here. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and earth, in the seas and all the deeps. That's Psalm 135, verse 6. And as you see before you, Job states, and Job certainly went through a, a difficult time to say the least, I know you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I mean, he's God for goodness sakes. He's gonna do what he's gonna do, right? Otherwise he wouldn't be God. So what's the point? I went up to Multnomah School of the Bible back in the 80s, asking this question as a young believer. If God is sovereign, why pray? Why pray? I went to a bunch of classes on that, and I came home with the same question. What good does it do to pray? Daniel says, 435, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? You remember the twins? One was appointed for wrath, the other was appointed for good things in Romans. So we come back to this question about prayer. Well, there's two reasons I want to submit to you. The first one is, we're told to pray. Okay, So out of obedience, we're told to pray. Whether we understand it or not, and I'm going to submit to you that we can understand it in just a second. But the first thing is that if you love me, the Lord said, you will be obedient. And I command you to pray. Rejoice, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and 18. 
Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. That is a really hard verse in suffering. And if somebody's suffering, don't go to them with this verse and say, rejoice, rejoice. How do you rejoice when you're in physical agony or mental agony? all the time. How do you rejoice? For this is the will of God concerning you. And then Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. <clears throat> be anxious for nothing. Do you really have any idea, God, what I'm going through right now? And you tell me not to be anxious about this? Uh, yeah, because I know the plans I have for you, plans for your good, plans for your good. And the difficult thing in this family is that we're so finite and he's so infinite. And we're so finite that we've lived 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years and he's the God of eternity and we think we're going to get it all figured out. And he's doing something, and we're a part of it, but we can't see it all. We can't see how the suffering is part of the big picture. But there will come a time, I think, when he'll show us, when we're with him, how it all fit together, how it was all part of what he was accomplishing. But there's another part that's even more important. God, the second reason is God is sovereign and has the power to affect change. Think of it this way. <clears throat> he says that the blind receive sight, the lame walk, and those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. If God did not have the power to raise the dead, i.e. you and me in our dead condition, then why would we pray to him about anything? See, the very thing is that he is sovereign and he has the power is the very reason to bring our request to him. Some of you have met Joy's old horse, Tess, before. Tess is dead. <laughs> A little thin. <clears throat> Do I have the power to raise Tess from the grave? Do I have the power to raise the dead? But God does. And if God wanted to, he could bring this horse back to life. I hope he does it. He was a miserable horse. <laughs> we were glad when she died. <laughs> she is more valuable now as a prop than she ever was as a horse. 
We'll come back to Tess in a minute. You see, the thing is that we cannot, as people, change a heart. We can present the gospel, and he's called us to participate in that, in his, what he is doing by being his ambassadors. And we can argue, or we can logically lay it out. We can be gentle, we can be kind, we can, but we cannot change that girl's heart or anybody's heart because we don't have the power. And the gospel is not going to be made known through logic. It's made known, but it's, it, it is God. What I'm trying to say, it is God that changes the heart and causes us to be born again. As, Paul, as um, Jesus shared with Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be spiritually born. It is only God, family, that is sovereign and has the power to make a change. And that is why we should pray, because he is sovereign. Why would we pray to something that cannot affect a change? That's why we pray. Ephesians 2, 5, even when we were dead in our transgressions, emphasis mine, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. I want you to turn with me over to Ephesians because there's a little bit more of that passage I want to share with you. Ephesians <clears throat> chapter 2, not 5, pardon me, chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Let me read again. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, he, God, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. By his unmerited favor we are saved. Raised us up, verse 6, with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In order, now note this, in order that ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. That is what makes us his story. We are the redeemed. We are the testimony of God raising the dead by making us spiritually alive. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves that gift the gift of faith is a gift of God, not as a result of works that anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The good works he's referring to is your life, that you're going to walk in a way that will exemplify his character as an ambassador for him. So Paul, Ryan to the Colossians, says about prayer, three things. Be devoted to it, alert as to what to be thankful for, in verse 2. Okay. In everything, give thanks, but be alert to what you're giving thanks for. Secondly, he's praying that God would open up an opportunity to speak. Notice what it, let's look at the verse really closely. 
In verse 3, it says, Pray in the same time for us as well that God may open up to us a door for the word to proclaim Jesus Christ so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been in prison. Paul's recognizing that the circumstances that he is in, being in prison, is part of the proclamation of the gospel. In order that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. That's a great prayer because see, he's asking, Lord, give me the ability to tell the story well. Your story. Give me the ability. Elsewhere, it talks about in the scripture, study to show yourselves approved workmen that need not be ashamed. So you need to know God's word. So when the opportunity presents itself, you can speak to the moment, to the issue. And that I would be clear in the way I am to speak. He moves on after that in verse 5 to talk about our conduct. Be wise in conduct with outsiders and look for the opportunity to share. Conduct ourselves with wisdom, okay, and knowing when to share. Being sensitive to what they're sharing, they're sharing with you. You know, people enjoy talking about themselves. So if you want to engage in a conversation, you're on an airplane or a train or traveling and you're sitting next to somebody you don't know, start asking them about themselves. And pretty soon you'll have a dialogue going on. And as that dialogue is going on, you can say, Lord, open a door that I can share your life with them. And then, then he goes on, and he talks about our speech again. Seasoned with grace, unmerited favor. Seasoned with salt, it should be interesting. Now some of, you know, most of us have listened to people that don't have the concept down of what it means to season their words with salt, making it interesting. And you may say, Steve, this is a really good time to practice what you're preaching. <laughs> but the concept to tell a story well is an art that we need to learn how to do. Listen to people that do it well. Practice what they do, okay? You know, Mark Twain, I really enjoy reading Mark Twain because he knows how to tell a story well with his examples and the way he uses words. Abraham Lincoln, read Lincoln. You wanna learn how to tell a story. Read Grant, you know, get the autobiography of Grant and read it. People that age knew how to tell a story well because they were orators. We didn't have all this push button kind of stuff and these quick little messages that has dumbed us down in the ability to speak well. We need to speak well, being sensitive to those. And lastly, he says, speak to the point. Know how to respond to another. Don't just be telling your story, but know how to respond. What is the point of what you're trying to say? Because if they can't get the point, you've wasted your time. 
and theirs. I love this verse in Ephesians. <clears throat> I wish I could do it as much as I love it. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for the edification according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. Boy, if we could all do that, wouldn't that be just the cat's meow? <laughs> Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment. And this is not aimless chatter and trivia stuff. This is knowing how to talk, to converse, not just to throw out your opinion and don't give them a chance to interact with it. As we wrap this up, Paul is going to talk about this man again. And uh, he started out talking about him in, in chapter 1, 3 through 12. And he finishes it up by talking about him in 4, 12 and 13. You remember Epaphroditus cared enough about those people that he traveled over 1,100 miles to talk to Paul about what was going on in the church of Colossae. He had a passion. He had a passion for his people. And he needed some help. And he went and got it. And Paul says, at the end, he says, he's a bond slave of Christ. He is his man, laboring for you in prayer, bringing petitions to God the Father that they would, the Colossians would understand. Not the craziness that was going on in the world, not the different religious things that were infiltrating this church, but it, they would really understand what it meant to be the church, the body of Christ. And he has a deep concern, and he informed us of you. And so I think, as I've looked at this book, this letter, over these last couple of months, I come away with this take-home message for us from what Paul's saying. Let us, let Oak Grove, <clears throat> Be the church, the body of Christ, by our, weird, by our prayer life, our words, our conduct, everything we do. May we exemplify Jesus Christ. That's what he's called us to do, to be his body, that the world can see what God is doing. <clears throat> For we're, we are his body, and we are his story, and we are his testimony that he is redeeming the lost and he is raising the dead because we were, as this skull, dead in our trespasses and sins. But he made us alive through Jesus Christ and he conquered death. He went to the cross, died for our sins, raised again on the third day, seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us to this time, and there to welcome us home when our journey on this life is done. And may he say to those of us of Oak Grove, when we're there, well done, good and faithful servants. You testified of me. You didn't just go play church. 
You were the church. And that should be our prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful, wonderful letter that because of one man, you had Paul write that has been handed down through the ages that we have in front of us today. Thank you for that. Thank you so much for that. Thank you for the encouragement therein. Thank you that you have called us to be a part of what you are doing, what you are accomplishing. Thank you you've called us to be a part of redeeming a lost world. Thank you you've called us a part to be your ambassador, to be the body of Christ. Thank you for entrusting us with your holy word. And may we proclaim it boldly from the valleys, the lowlands, the cities, the countries, the mountaintops. May we, wherever we go, proclaim Jesus Christ as our Lord, God, and Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Steve. You know, as Steve was speaking, I was thinking about um, Psalm 19, and um, partly because the first song we're going to sing comes out of that, but I was looking at the whole psalm, and you guys are probably familiar with Psalm 19, where it starts with the heavens declare the glory of God, and it, it looks at God for